0: Israel is at war. Total war. With these words, my grandfather of blessed memory began his sermon to his congregation in the days following the outbreak of the Yom Kippur 1973 war. Israel is at war. Total war. Israel is engaged in a life and death struggle, a struggle for its survival. A hundred million Arabs against three million Israelis. My grandfather continued, how many of Israel's young people who mobilized on Yom Kippur, who left Shul from home, from wherever they happened to be, who went out confidently and courageously will return wounded and mutilated? How many flowers of our youth, he asked, will never return? On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we prayed for life. Today, we are not asking for ourselves, he said. Today, we are praying for the survival of Israel. I never knew my grandfather, the Reverend Dr. I.K. Cosgrove, rabbi of Glasgow, Scotland's Garnet Hill Synagogue. Aside from a photograph of him holding me when I was a baby and a lifetime of stories about him shared with me, My impressions of my grandfather come by way of a handful of his handwritten sermon notes, saved by my father following his death. The final sermon of his in my possession is the one from which I just shared. He delivered it on the first day of Sukkot, October 11th, 1973. He died just a few weeks later. That day, he implored his community to take action to make a life-saving transfusion of damim, the Hebrew word that means both money and blood, to do what was ever needed to save Israeli lives. He spoke of his love for Israel and the importance of Jewish unity, and while he expressed confidence that Israel would prevail in his crossouts in the scribbled palimpsest of his sermon notes, I can sense his anxiety, his uncertainty at the outcome. Israel was attacked on October 6th. On October 7th, Syria had captured the Golan. On October 8th, the Egyptians had destroyed over 50 Israeli tanks in a a 13 minute battle. What my grandfather knew or didn't know that day, I don't know. But I can read his words and I can see the shake of his hand. Kol goyim sevavuni, the nations have surrounded me, he quoted from Psalms. Who will live and who will die? he cited from the High Holiday Prayer Book, as dire and dark an hour as a young Jewish state had ever known. For those who do remember 73, and I imagine many here do, then you probably remember not only where you were that day, but how you felt. Arab armies pouring across the Golan Heights and Sinai's shattered Bar Lev Line, harrowing reports of battle, A face off with the Soviets, the oil embargo, and the apocalyptic visions triggered by it all. Over these last few weeks, I've heard many people share recollections of where they were on that Yom Kippur when Israel's fate hung in the balance. And whatever memories we have here in the diaspora, they pale in comparison to the memories held by Israelis themselves. 2,656 soldiers killed in action. Over 12,000 wounded, hundreds captured, many of whom we know were subjected to torture by the enemy. We here at Park Avenue Synagogue need look no further than the father of our own Cantor Schwartz, Yehuda Schwartz. Yehuda was a new father to his five-week-old daughter when he was called up to his tank unit on that Yom Kippur day. He went up to the northern front going up the Golan into battle as others fled down in the other direction. When his tank was hit, thank God he survived, but not without suffering severe burns. I think of Ozi's mother, Yochevet, who left her newborn daughter at home so she could run to Rambam Hospital to see her husband. His burns were so severe that she was unable to recognize him until she heard his voice. As Ozi's father would later reflect, There were no heroics that day. Truth be told, there wasn't even much of a battle. The real battle only came after the war, the battle of recovery, the battle of every soldier, of every soldier's wife, daughter and son, every soldier's mother and father, many of whom themselves were Holocaust survivors to come to terms with the trauma of the war. Shattering as the loss of life and physical wounds The psychic trauma on the soldiers, their families, and the nation was only just beginning. Israel would never be the same. The shockwaves of war reverberating through the country into the years to come. The war revealed Israel's vulnerability. The hubris of the country's post 67 complacency, referred to as a Concepcia, was shattered. Some of you may recall the image of Moti Ashkenazi stationed outside of Golda Meir's office in the months after the war with a placard proclaiming, Grandma, your defense minister is a failure and 3,000 of your children are dead. The Agronaut Commission, the waves of protest over the government's lack of preparedness and handling of the war. By April of 1974, both Prime Minister Mayer and Defense Minister Dayan had resigned their posts. By the 1977 elections, Mayer's Labour Party had given way to Begin's Likud. In retrospect, the trauma of the war gave rise to at least two movements. Though the founding of the ultra-nationalist orthodox right-wing settler movement, Gush Emunim, technically began following the 67 Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War functioned as its call to action in that it pressed the issue of Israel's security and territorial integrity, a movement for settlement expansion reflecting not only a religious and ideological mission, but also a belief that the territories were vital for Israel's security. On the other side of the ledger, Israel's Peace Now movement also began in the aftermath of 73. The trauma of the war led many Israelis to reevaluate the consequences of a prolonged conflict and thus the emergence of both secular and religious Israelis advocating for a negotiated settlement based on the principle of land for peace, without which, and we're gonna hear more about this during the break tomorrow in the dialogue, the statesmanship of Kissinger, Begin, and Sadat may have come to naught. Two movements, both born of a single trauma, representing two diametrically opposed visions of Israel's future, a division that continues to play out to this very day. It is 50 years later. It's Yom Kippur. And once again, Israel stands at a tipping point. It is not, thank God, 73. Israel is strong, no longer the David to the Goliath of the Arab world. Not only is the Jewish state well capable of defending itself, but it has, in recent years, forged and continues to forge relationships with countries with whom the thought of peace would have once been unthinkable. The threats Israel faces are not what they were in 73, and we do neither Israel nor ourselves any favors in letting historic anniversaries lead us to hysterics. And yet the challenges Israel faces are historic monumental, and existential in their own right. 50 years later, we gather on Yom Kippur with a new generation's fears and concerns regarding the security and survival of the Jewish state. Our year in review is not a pretty one. Last fall's tight election, giving rise to the most hardline ultra-nationalist right-wing government of Israel's history. A judicial overhaul process that has split the country. 38 weeks and counting of pro-democracy protests on Tel Aviv's Kaplan Street, on streets across the country, protests and counter-protests. Seven million Israelis on the streets in the year gone by, not to mention strikes in multiple sectors of the economy and the refusal of some IDF soldier reserve soldiers to serve. We have witnessed the mainstreaming of racism and homophobia by Knesset members, the forwarding of legislation that would curtail Israel's status as a liberal democracy, and legislation that would provide blanket exemptions from national service for all young ultra-Orthodox men. Israelis have suffered again and again and again from the unstemmed violence of Palestinian terrorists, There have been outbreaks of settler terrorist attacks against Palestinians, and there has been an unprecedented eruption of violence from within the Israeli Arab community. We are bearing witness to a distancing between American Jewry and the Jewish state, between America and Israel. Even as I hear, for the first time in my lifetime, some Israelis, Israelis who have made a career excoriating American Jews for overreach into Israel's affairs, now pleading that American Jews say more, do more, and get more involved in Israeli life. What was once traith has become kosher. By any measure, a stunning, consequential, and defining year for Israel. Unlike 73, thank God, the present challenges to Israel's security are internal, not external. But make no mistake, in 2023, Israel is at war, total war with itself. Beyond the daily news cycle, the particulars of judicial override and selection of judges, most everyone agrees that the upheavals of the hour are about more than just checks and balances, an Israeli Marbury versus Madison moment. Some believe the underlying question is whether Israel will choose to be a Jewish or democratic state. Our present tensions reflecting a fundamental divide between a religious and a secular vision of Israel, a theocratic state of Jerusalem or a liberal state of Tel Aviv. Others believe this moment is really about the settlements, a come-to-Moses moment, if you will, on the two-state solution. Still others see the eruptions of the past year to reflect long-held grievances by the Sephardic community it is time once and for all to break the Ashkenazi's elite on Israel's political economic and judicial life many have noted the similar timeline between Israel's present crises and its founding and the outbreak of civil war in our country and our founding some sort of gestational period whereby issues left unresolved by a country's founders eventually burst forth. There are those who believe that the root cause of Israel's troubles lie in the prime minister's desire to retain power and thus avoid criminal prosecution, while others believe that Israel's slide into an illiberal democracy is just a sign of the times, no different than Poland or Hungary or for that matter the bare-knuckle realities of minoritarian politics be it in the Knesset or the US House of Representatives. As far as Israel's increasingly distanced relationship with American Jewry, many view this year as a year American Jews decided to no longer let their silence serve as a complicit enabler for an Israeli government that does not recognize the Judaism of its diaspora and a diaspora that no longer sees a home for its Judaism in the Jewish state. And while all of these, some of these, or maybe none of these tensions may be operating at the substratum of Israel's present woes, the fault line in my mind runs deeper through the Yom Kippur War, but even deeper than that, to the innermost reaches of the Jewish condition before the state was established as deep and far back as the very beginnings of our people. Let me explain. Hurt, trauma, missing pieces, as I explained on Rosh Hashanah, are part and parcel of the human condition. Having narrowly escaped the Damoclean sword, victims of trauma, be it a person or a people, will choose to respond in a multitude of ways, the two most common being anger or empathy. I have been hurt, so says the former, and I will never allow myself to be hurt again. My hatred of my enemy and my hypervigilance against my potential enemy is my response to my victimhood. To paraphrase the political scientist, Jennifer Mitzen, to the physically insecure, there is ontological security in knowing whose one's enemies are. Another response to trauma involves a posture of empathy and the dogged pursuit of peace. I have been hurt, so says this victim, It's a condition neither either I nor anyone should ever experience. Having survived, having been given a new lease on life, I will leverage every fiber of my being towards ensuring that no human being should ever endure the victimhood that I did. I will work to bring peace in this world with the aim that the divine spark of every person is affirmed. Anger and empathy, both well-documented responses to trauma existing within us all. As Jews, we have had more than our fair share of trauma. Both are coded into the DNA of our people. Milton Berle was writer than he knew when he quip that when a person converts to Judaism, they are granted 5,000 years of retroactive persecution. But how we respond to that trauma That has always been the choice that has defined us. Is the take-home message of Purim, Esther's courage and heroism, a message of light, joy, and gladness, gift-giving, and sadaka to the poor? Or is it a tale about the wickedness of Haman, the perennial threat of anti-Semitism, the obligation to defend ourselves and take vengeance on our adversaries? Both are there. What we choose to focus on is a decision that we make. Is a take-home message of the Passover Seder, one of radical empathy, a reminder that we must know the heart of the stranger for we were once strangers in a strange land? Or is a message that in every generation, a new Pharaoh emerges to destroy us against whom we must stand vigilant? Both are there. What we choose to focus on is a decision that we make. Many of us can probably think of a survivor of the Shoah whose trauma resulted in a lifetime of embittered victimhood. Many of us can think, I'm sure, of a survivor who responded to their trauma with kindness, liberal values, and an overflowing love of humanity. Neither response in and of itself is right or wrong. Why one response and not the other? It's not for anyone but for that person to know, but it is the difference that makes all the difference in the world. The Yom Kippur War is illustrative in that two identifiable movements, Gush Emunim and Peace Now, emerged from the war, each reflecting, reflecting a response to a single trauma. But the Yom Kippur War is just one date and data point in a much bigger story. This year also marks 120 years since the Kishinev pogroms, a series of anti Jewish riots that prompted many early Zionists, most famously Vladimir Jabotinsky to turn away from Achad Ha'am's light unto nations cultural Zionism towards a revisionist Zionism of assertive Jewish self-defense. In fact, this year, 2023, marks exactly 100 years since the publication of Jabotinsky's iconic Iron Wall essay in which he urged in the wake of the Telchai massacre an uncompromising militants in the face of the Arab opposition to a nascent Jewish state. That same year, Jabotinsky resigned from Weizmann's moderate Zionist movement to found Beitar, a program aimed at educating youth in a militant national spirit. It was a late Israeli poet Chaim Guri who, in the wake of the Eichmann trial, described the soul of Israel by likening it to our patriarch Isaac, who narrowly escaped his near sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Isaac, Guri wrote, was not sacrificed but he bequeathed that hour to his offspring. They are born with a knife in their hearts. I think of the knife on the hearts of Israelis in the poetry of Uris V. Greenberg, the poet of Israel's national right, who in the wake of the Shoah urged Jews to never trust, not even when the Messiah comes, to turn their swords into plowshares for fear of becoming victims once again. I think of that knife in Moshe Dayan's 1956 Gettysburg-esque funeral oration of the slain kibbutznik Roy Rotberg, in which he spoke of young Roy, whose yearnings for peace deafened his ears, and he did not hear the voice of murder waiting for him in ambush. Swords or plowshares, defending Jewish blood or pursuing universal values, two visions of Zionism one on guard from impending catastrophe, one seeking to be a light unto nations, both born of trauma. This is a fault line that runs through the history of our people since our founding. This is a tension that has defined, presently defines and will continue to define Israel. Aside from the rather significant fact that they now wield power and are thus left unchecked in their messianic extremism the ideologies being espoused by the israeli far right it's not new unto itself israel's ultranational government is merely the latest instantiation of an ideological line that has always coursed through the veins of our people as for those protesting on the streets of tel aviv or for that matter liberal american jews alienated by an illiberal Israeli government, they have every right to be shocked, but they should not be surprised. Indeed, if there's a silver lining to all this, it might just be that Jews in Israel and America will be more engaged and active in the short, medium, and long-term tactics necessary to create an Israel that reflects their lived values, and I would add the founding documents of the State of Israel itself. All of which brings me back to where I began. It is Yom Kippur 50 years later and Israel's fate yet again hangs in the balance. And like my grandfather before me, I wonder what the message is that my community needs to hear. My writing instrument is a little more sophisticated, but my thoughts are just as fumbling and my hand too, it trembles. I know my opening line. It echoes that of my grandfather. Israel is at war, at war with itself. It's where I go from there that my struggle begins. Israel is not, in my opinion, in a competing truths moment, what the rabbis call an elu elu debate, that the views of both sides are reflecting equally the will of a living God i have no great reveal for you today you know what i believe in i've been saying it to you for the last 16 years women's rights gender equality minority rights separation of state and religion a two-state solution religious pluralism liberal democracy and yes as stated in israel's declaration of independence an israel based on freedom justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. I may live at the edge of the West, but Libby be Kaplan, my heart is on Kaplan Street, because when you tune out all of the noise, it boils down to whether Israel can and will remain both a Jewish and democratic state, and I know what side I am on. And I hold no expectation that everyone agrees with each other, with me, or for that matter, your fellow congregant. We're a big tent. Indeed, if there's a differentiated place Park Avenue Synagogue has in the landscape of New York and national Jewish life, it's to model a single community capable of housing a plurality of views as to what is and isn't in the best interest of Israel as a secure Jewish and democratic state which brings me to my second point convinced as i am of the rectitude of my views i also believe it to be a misrepresentation of the jewish soul and the harsh realities of our world to aspire towards some sort of unidimensional liberal zionism our world has not been kind to the jews one does not need anti-semitism to make a case statement for a jewish state But unfortunately, in every generation, our enemies provide us with one. Israel and the Jewish people have real enemies. Our trauma is not imagined. Lovely as it may be to imagine Israel as a light unto nations, land of hope and dreams for liberal values, we must neither forget that Israel was neither handed to us on a silver platter nor will be sustained by the kindness of strangers. There is still Iran. There is still Janine. there is still anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism on college campuses across the globe. The threats against Israel are not going away anytime soon. We need to be vigilant and as the prayer book teaches, we need strength if we are to achieve peace. In other words, what we need is a Zionism that stands in defense of the Jewish state and a Zionism that stands in defense of liberal values we need both because if we have only the latter then we will have a defenseless state and if we have only the former we will not have a state worth defending we need both because the presence of the two strands of zionism mitigate the excesses of the other we need both because both are responses authentic responses to jewish trauma most of all we need both because it's in those moments that when Israel is able to demonstrate the presence of both, that Israel is at its best. When the same prime minister, Menachem Begin, who bombed Israel, Iraq's Osirak nuclear power plant, picked up 66 Vietnamese refugees that no other country would take in, that was Israel at its best. When 30 years ago, Prime Minister Rabin, after a lifetime of service in defense of Israel, signed the Oslo Accords, explaining we must fight terrorism as if there's no peace process and work to achieve peace as if there is no terror. That is Israel at its best. Or just this past month when a terrible earthquake hit Morocco and Israel offered its rescue teams regardless of any history between the two countries, that is Israel at its best. The irony of the present moment is that what is dividing Israel right now could be its greatest strength if only the two sides could find a way to let their competing impulses exist within a single-body politic. Lest we forget, the tragedy of the binding of Isaac wasn't just a trauma at the top of the mountain. The tragedy was that the two who walked up the mountain together, Vayelchu Shnei Yachtav, walked down alone on their own. We need to learn to walk and to talk and to live together the last major battle of the yom kippur war occurred on october and 24th and 25th in suez city a ceasefire had been declared but what in hindsight was a disastrous decision before the arrival of the un observers a final push was made by israel to occupy suez city a logistical base for Egypt's then-surrounded Third Army. Israel's 66th Battalion, the paratroopers who had famously captured Ammunition Hill in the Six-Day War, were sent in for the mop-up mission. They had no advanced intelligence or battle plan. They entered along the main artery of Suez City, which by that time was mostly deserted. Upon reaching the second intersection, the battalion was caught totally off guard when grenades, gunfire, and RPGs rained down on the ambushed soldiers. Upon regaining consciousness, one soldier, Micha Eshet, opened his eyes to see that many of his soldiers were like him, wounded, and many others were dead. Micha's legs felt like they were on fire. He couldn't hear a thing, and together with the other wounded, crawled out of his vehicle on his hands to take shelter in an adjacent building. Two miles deep into the city, no rescue mission was on its way. The surrounding Egyptians continued to fire on the huddled soldiers. It would just be a matter of time before they penetrated the building. Micha recalls being given a gun with a single bullet in the chamber and the order to burn all the documents he had on his person, which he did save a drawing that his five-year-old daughter Sharon had given him as nightfall arrived some soldiers in the unit thought better to wait for help while others argued that it was time to make a run for it at 2:30 in the morning the surviving soldiers decided it was now or never in the dark night for two hours those bearing stretchers those wounded dragging their legs and the few healthy ones wound their way through the streets of Suez City towards a spotlight that indicated the presence of the Israeli position. As Micha and his fellow soldiers reached safety, the sun began to break through the clouds and the morning mist. Exhausted and out of breath, Micha collapsed on the ground, looking at the most beautiful sunrise of his life. Over 80 dead and 120 wounded, Yom Kippur war ending just as as ignominiously and traumatically as it began. Micha, I'm glad you're here with us today. I'm glad you and Sherry are here. I am forever grateful to you that you took me in as your adopted son when I lived in Israel after college. You instilled in me a love for Israel that has never wavered. That cute brunette that I met in Israel, you'll never believe. She became the Revitzen of Park Avenue Synagogue. Micha, I'm proud of your leadership in Brothers and Sisters in Arms, IDF combat veterans for a Jewish and democratic Israel, out in force at Friday's pro-democracy rally. Their presence reminding all of us what it is that Israel has fought for, fights for, and continues to fight for. I hope my speech at the rally made you proud. Your presence here today makes us all proud. Most of all, Micha, I'm excited for the party being planned on October 25th for the members of your battalion who fought 50 years ago, a day you told me reserved for smiles and laughter. You're even calling it a birthday party. Why a birthday party? Because on that day, you and your friends were given life, having survived the trauma of the darkest of nights you emerged understanding that the miracle of life, the miracle of the state of Israel, was something not just to be defended, but nurtured and treasured. So, Mika, when you return to Israel, let them know that we here in America, we here at Park Avenue Synagogue, feel the same way, that we stand with you, with all of Israel, as we always have, so we always will. Good yontif. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.